Uh, Open your Bibles, if you would, with me to John chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, our ushers have one for you. So if you just lift up your hand and keep it up, uh, they'll find you. John chapter 17. Make sure you keep your hand up so they can see you. If you get a Bible that we're giving you, it's page 587, I believe, John 17. And, and by the way, if you don't own a Bible, uh, you can have this one. Uh, feel free to take it with you uh, everywhere you go and learn about Christ. That's who we're going to be talking about today. So um, John chapter 17. Let me give you a little bit of uh, where we've been on this passage. We're, our intention when we formulated this was a three-week series, although at Gilbert we're, we're doing it in two. And the reason why, why is because of last week's celebration for Tom's ministry over 22 years. So thanks for being here and, and celebrating with us. It was an awesome time to remember what God has done and, and will continue to do. And so we have a little bit of a task in front of us today. We did uh, the first part of John 17, the first five verses, and now we're drinking out of a fire hose because we got 21 to go in one day. Okay, so I, I don't, I've never drank out of a fire hose before, but it looks painful. So hang on to your socks. This this might hurt a little bit. Um, let me just give you some background on John 17. It's, it's called the high priestly prayer. Some have called it the holy, holy of sacred scriptures. Some have called it the true Lord's prayer, unlike the Matthew instruction tutorial model of prayer. This is truly Jesus' prayer uh, for himself and, and for us. Um, it is prayed out loud in front of his disciples. It was written down, therefore it's out loud in front of us. It comes just after some of Christ's most amazing teaching after the upper room discourse. Um, it is just hours away from his betrayal and his crucifixion. So we're talking about an extremely intense, intentional um, moment for Christ and his prayer. Um, so the first week we got together, we looked at the first five verses, which if you break this passage down, it breaks down neatly in three sections, one through five, six through 19, and then 20 through 26. Now we're going to absorb six through 26 this morning, but the first five verses were Jesus praying for himself. Now, the way we packaged it was that if Jesus is praying these wonderful, unbelievable doctrinal truths about himself in front of his disciples, therefore he's praying it in front of us. And so we just kind of gave it a title, uh, Truths That Jesus Wants His Church to Be Certain Of. And so <clears throat> last week, or two weeks ago, we mentioned the first one in verse one, that the cross puts the character or the glory of God on display. Nothing says in totality what God is and isn't like the cross. So he's a merciful, loving God. He's a kind and benevolent God, but he's also a holy and just God. He is wrathful against sin, and the cross just screams those things, of which if you didn't have the cross, you wouldn't know. I mean, you might know of maybe mercy, you might know of love, but you wouldn't know of holiness and justice. God killing God to save sinners who are at war with him says so much more, right? And so that was the first thing that Jesus prayed in verse 1. The second thing he prayed was um, that his authority makes salvation certain. 
And, and there's a big difference between what some say about salvation, that salvation is a man, um, God, cooperative. Like God makes it possible, man leverages his belief to receive it, and, and it's, it's kind of up to him if he maintains that belief, if he believes enough or the right things, whatever. But what we understand of what Jesus has and his authority over salvation is that he gives it precisely to his people that God gave him. That's what the text tells us. And so salvation isn't up for grabs. There is no confusion and no uncertainty. Jesus came to give his life for his people and they all will be saved. Not the possibility of salvation, but the certainty of salvation. Do you remember? The, the, the third thing that we saw in verse three that Jesus uh, wants the church to be certain of is that eternal life brings us close to God. Now, does eternal life mean eternal life? Yes. Yes, it does. It means that those of us who put our faith and trust in Christ live forever with him, but sometimes we lean more into the fact that we live forever as the prize versus the prize of heaven being God. And, and what we learn in, in verse 3 that Jesus prayed out loud was that when it's all said and done, the joy of man's heart will be fully met in him in eternity. That knowing God, knowing his son, who was sent by God as God for sinners, that knowledge in heaven forever, that's the prize of heaven. Uh, we saw in, in verse 4, um, Jesus praying for himself, a truth that we need to know, and that is humiliation glorifies God. The humiliation of the creator, sustainer of the universe, coming as a baby, broken without a place to lay his head, right? Uh, without uh, fanfare, without the recognition of the creation he came to redeem to say, you are the creator. He just came humbly. And somehow in that unbelievably broken, nobody cares picture of Jesus, God was most glorified. And we kind of draw the connection between his humiliation and our receiving it um, for the sake of Christ. So when we walk around and say, I love Jesus, and the world goes, I don't love you then, then there's somehow glory in this for God that wouldn't happen without it. And uh, so we learned that. We learned one last thing in verse five that Jesus wants the church to be certain of, and that is that Jesus finishes where he started, exalted, that there is no conflu confusion how this is gonna end. He will be glorified. He will be in heaven. He will draw us to himself and his body, his glorified body, will speak for all time and eternity that he accomplished what he accomplished and it will not be shaken. And so these truths, these doctrinal, unbelievable truths for the church are things that we embrace. And because they're so certain and so true, they have to formulate our thinking as we read these next uh, 21 verses. And there's a lot in them. And so uh, I want you to be prepared for the hard work of it. Um, but if Jesus in the first section is praying absolute doctrinal truths that he wants his church to be sure of, then this last section, verses um, 6 through 26, I'm calling what Jesus wants for his church. These are things that the creator is praying for us. So let me, let me dive right in here, read verses 6 through 10. These are, kind of the, these are kind of the responses to verses 1 through 5. And then he gets really specific in the things he's praying for. And I have six of them I want to share with you this morning. So let's read verse 6 through 10. <clears throat> Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you gave, you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. 
and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Here's what Jesus is saying in essence in these, I would call them the responsive verses to the absolute truths about what he did in verse, verses one through five. Real simple. Father, I came and did what I came to do. I accomplished it. It's completely finished. It's the eternal plan. And look at the, the, the word, the third word in my text in verse six. I have manifested. I have revealed. I have shown off your glory. I've revealed you to the world. They all know it. These disciples believe it. They carry the truth. They know that I came from you and they believe that truth. And so in essence, Jesus is praying for his disciples who witnessed this wonderful glory on display. And Jesus said, I, I, I did it. I accomplished the very task that you came, that you sent me to do. Now he turns his prayer towards what he wants for his disciples. And by the way, by extension to us. Uh, the, the passage, like I said before, breaks down neatly in three sections. And first is Jesus praying for himself. That second section, 6 through 19, is him praying for his disciples. And then the rest of it is praying for us, his church, the extension of that. But the reality of those verses, those 21 verses, is that they're all true for all disciples. That there isn't anything unique that Jesus is praying for these 11 that isn't true for us. These are so what's responses to this wonderful gospel that is authored in God through the finished work of Christ. You see? So you just need to embrace every bit of it as what he wants for all those who follow him. And so we're kind of bucketing him together, even though we'd have more fun probably if we split it apart a little bit. But we're bucketing it together so that we can see his desires for us. And so that's the intention today. Um, and by the way, let me just give you some, some, some mood to this. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been prayed for. I don't know if you've ever had somebody that you really care or somebody come alongside, put their hands on you and just start asking God to do crazy things for you. Uh, on Wednesday night, we had a prayer meeting and I had uh, several folks praying for me and I, I was sitting there just kind of going, wow, you mean that? And I was, over, I was really overwhelmed at the moment of them praying for me. And then I stopped and thought, well, wait a minute. Jesus prayed for me. There's something way. I mean, I appreciate all the prayers of everyone all the time, as you would. But what if, what if, what if I just said, Jesus, today, just today, I won't ever bother you again. Would you visit Gilbert this morning? And would you just do the pastoral prayer? Would you come up and just pray for the church? Now, you would be on pins and needles. You'd be so ramped up for what the creator, sustainer, savior of the world has to say to you and for you. And so in that attitude, in that mood, just embrace now what you're going to hear in these next handful of verses. This is what he has desired for us. This is what he asked the father for us. And so this is what Jesus wants for his church. Here's the first one of six. He's asking that we be protected from ourselves. <laughs> Protect them from themselves. Verse 11, look at it with me. Jesus says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. The word kept is really important for you to understand. It means protect. In fact, the NIV, if you use the NIV, New, uh, New International Version, um, 
that they use the word protect there. There are two aspects to this protection or this keeping that Jesus prays for in verse 11. One is kind of the, the personal side and the other is the corporate side. One is a, a prayer to um, protect the status of, of our connection to God. So he's praying for us to be kept in him. And the other half is the, the prayer for our protection to be united against all the opposition in the world against us in the process of becoming like Christ living in this world. So he's praying these two aspects of being kept or, or protected in a, in a moment like this. So let me try to give it a little bit more clarity. There are two fights at least for every believer. One is an internal battle and one is a corporate one. The, the internal one... Um, this is the one we go rogue with and get a little secretive with, but the internal fight, the one we fight alone, is to live out our confession. It's to follow the great command, to love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is to, um, it is to be devoted to him. It is to live close to God. It's the heart issue. It, it's, it's the thing that pushes you through the dry spots in your life, your, your faith. Do you understand? So... Um, this happens to, to every believer that I know of. They learn a lot, and every time they learn something significant about God, his work, his love for them, man, they're, they're, their mind can't contain it, and there's this sense of being overwhelmed, fresh. It's like fresh faith, right? But if you've walked with Christ for years, you fight for faith. You've heard it. You've been there. You've done that. You sang that. You confessed that. I haven't heard something new for a while. And, and so you can do your, your life of faith more by the numbers than by the heart. And suddenly your heart starts to shrivel on you. And Jesus prayed for you, prayed for me, that, that what would come out of us, what would motivate us is an affection um, with our whole being, heart, soul, mind, and strength that there would be such a certainty about me in him forever carried by his finished work that, that I wouldn't be rattled. I might have dark moments. I might have moments where I feel like it's, it's hard to grasp, but it's never uncertain. Do you understand? And there's that fight of faith. Every one of us wake up every day. And, and, and some, to be honest with you, I, I mentioned the last service, some people just have harder trips than others with this. You know, there's a... I will simplify it because it'd be too hard to talk about all the variances of faith, but some people are born thinkers. They can't ever shut it off. They don't ever shut it off. They think, think, think. They take whatever thoughts they had and spin them upside down and think again, and they, they're the ones that wake up and go, is it real? Oh, yeah, it's real, yeah. They fight for it. Someday the adversary can climb on and say, hey, by the way, you didn't answer that question last night. Until you answer all these questions... And I'm not certain. You can be certain. So be afraid. Be very afraid. And, and I have friends. I have friends who think deeply about the gospel. And for whatever reason, in God's sovereignty, they fight. They fight for confidence in it. And then there are other people, other friends of mine. I happen to be one of them. God just made me more stupid than other people. It just did. And I call it a gift. I don't think that deep. Um, I love the gospel. And, and I have, from the day God opened my eyes, never questioned, ever once. Um, and, and here's why. Because every time I look at me, it proves it. It proves it. There is anything about me that makes me feel like, well, maybe there's another way. Every time I look at me, I'm going, oh, if this gospel isn't real, 
we're all screwed. Um, and so people, and everywhere in between are these people on the journey of faith. And sometimes, sometimes it's a dark moment for us and Jesus is praying for you. That, that, that one with the truth, that confidence in the gospel, the certainty, God, I'm praying that they hold on to that. And then there's this, this other part. The other part that we uh, kind of take for granted, it's the, uh, it's the fighting together. It's the fight that's shared in faith. Jesus prays that we would be kept as one. This idea of unity is all through this passage, and we're going to come back to it again. Um, but his point is that in order for us to be protected from ourselves, that we would contribute to the faith of each other. I think Jesus knows something about us, clearly. He knows that sometimes we can do just the opposite. As opposed to contributing to the encouragement, faith, belief of others, because of our sin, rebellion, and disagreements with one another, we can do more harm than good. Have you not seen that in church before? I was online last night, way too late, and I was looking at um, modern-day examples of churches in dissension and fractured positions. They're falling apart. And it's never over anything important. It's always over stupid stuff. And Jesus is praying for us, church, because he knows that there's a tendency within us to get sideways with each other, to get bitter, to get angry, to resent, to covet, to lust, to take and not give, to not respect others, to treat others as we, should, we want to be treated. That whole thing that you just can say real easy, but as soon as the wrong person shows up in the story, you kind of go, well, except for you because you're the jerk and this doesn't apply to you. And, and those kinds of divisions... Jesus prayed against. God, keep them one together so that they confess together, encourage together, rebuke together, worship together, pray that they love me together because that testimony of oneness, and we're going to see in a little bit, is so powerful. So that's the first thing Jesus prays for, the protection against ourselves. The second aspect of his prayer is, is this, that he prays for our joy in verse 13. Do you see it? But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, there's, um, I want you to observe three specific things about joy. And, and the first one is obvious. It's the word joy, because I want you to connect it to the circumstances of which Jesus is praying this. Remember where he is. Do you remember? Just left the upper room discourse. He's hours away of being betrayed being beaten and being killed, and he's talking about joy. Not happiness, joy. Something connected to deep, deep places of faith, and he prays for us in this. In fact, it's somewhat a reflection of what he said just a chapter or two before. If you turn to John 15, just flip over to to the left, You'll see this section in John 15 of him teaching the church about being the, the true vine. And in verses 9 through 11, he, taught, he takes us through kind of a math equation, an equation of joy. All right? And this is what he says in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, let me just do the breakdown of this passage. What's he say? He says, to abide in my love, how do you do that? 
If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments by abiding my love, you will have joy, not just average joy, full joy. Do you see it there? He gets to chapter 17, and he's talking about joy that he's praying to the Father for us, directly connected to a fulfilled joy within themselves. Let me just break this down. First of all, here's what Jesus is saying. Full joy is found in obedience. And that second word you see there, that that word fulfilled, is the idea of joy being lived out in faith. So so let me make this point. Um, Who couldn't know joy when God is touching everything and blessing everything? You ever had one of those moments? Even if it was five minutes, you ever had a moment where you felt like God was all over you in a good way? You ever had a moment where God felt really quiet? You ever had a day of it? A week of it? You ever had it be a month or more? Where it just felt like somehow that presence you knew at one point in your life, maybe it's salvation or whatever, God felt like he was busy somewhere and he wasn't paying attention to you and it was really, really, really dry. Well, Jesus is praying for your joy to be, be fulfilled and he's praying this thought. A joy that's rooted in him, not conditions. And I think sometimes, church, I'm being really honest, sometimes we're more satisfied in the things he gives versus him, the giver. And sometimes God goes dark to make his point. Sometimes God has to go dark because we're, we're idol factories. We have a worship disorder. God's a giver of good things. He loves to give good things. And because we're so twisted and bent in our own thinking, we have a tendency to grab those good things and go, I love you, I love you. And we wander off and God goes, wait a second here. I'm the object of your affections. And so when he goes dark, sometimes God's joy is only experienced in the quiet times. Do you understand? When there's nothing there and there's no reason to to have like a deep-seated anchored joy and it comes, you're experiencing the answered prayer of your Savior for you. Because joy isn't connected to how healthy you are, how much money you have. It's not connected to how you feel or every relationship going well. Joy is connected to God. And when God goes dark on all these areas and you don't look at your life like, oh my gosh, I've got the brass ring, it's all going so well. God is trying to remind you that he is your joy. And he, he he doesn't handle competition very well. So, that's the second aspect of this joy. The other one, do you see it? It's the last little phrase. In themselves, verse 13, they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This kind of joy that's an inward thing. Again, to just bury the subject even more. In spite of what it looks like on the outside, even when all hell is breaking loose, um, when trials and sickness and suffering and need, Jesus prays for your joy. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. God, you're committed to my joy. You're committed to my satisfaction in you. You're committed to when I feel like everything else is breaking away, that you're my stability, you're my hope, you're my anchor. You're the reason why I can endure all things, suffer all things for your glory, for my sake. You're the reason there can be joy in the midst of garbage like that. Yes, and Jesus is praying for you. You should be happy about that. 
Third um, prayer that he prays for the church. He prays for our protection from the evil one. Look at verses 14 through 15. Jesus says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, we just finished our first Peter series not too long ago. And we finished with a reminder of what Peter was telling this church, the suffering church. Hey, by the way, you've got an adversary, and he's formidable, remember? And this is what he said in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We have, we have an adversary. We have a, a conflict going on with someone who is tangibly wanting us to not obey God. So there's some, there's some tension there. But watch this, church. There's also some tension within because we have this war going on within us. We have this body of sin and death that's wrapped around a God-saved soul. And the scriptures say they're in conflict with each other. You ever read Romans? We're about ready to study Romans. Romans 7 Romans 7, from Paul's vantage point, my opinion, is describing the tension and the insanity of not doing what I want to do and doing what I don't want to do. That whole process is the description of what it is to live in this body of sin and death. And, by the way, newsflash, we live in a pretty messed up world, don't we? In fact, it's really hard to look around and find anything that's that redeemable. Can't look at politics. Can't look at the economy. You can't look at the media and you can't look at society and you can't look at the news and there are so many pushers of sin, it's ridiculous. And you might look at this and go, okay, God, I'm done. What's the point? If this is all about righteousness for righteousness' sake, then all this is against you and it's against me and I, I, don't, I just want out. Fair? You ever thought that way? In fact, let me just put it this way. For Christians, growing in their faith means a couple of things. One is their sensitivity to sin skyrockets, and their desire to go home increases. Isn't that true? So I've experienced that in my life. The, the, the more I understand of God, the more I see how pukey I am, and the worse I want to get out of here. Really bad. And yet Jesus prays for us, church, and he doesn't pray that one. He says, Father... I'm leaving, but they're not. They're staying put. There's a couple of challenges for us, church, in this passage, to be honest. Um, some Christians, it's, it, and, and to be honest, it was probably more prevalent 30, 40, 50 some years ago, want to bury their head in the sand, want to isolate themselves from the world and, you know, burn their CDs and close the blinds and buy a gun. There's some people like that out there. That was supposed to be funny. You can laugh. Um, <laughs> although I think it's increasingly rare, there are some people that do, do that, that can't handle the pushback of the evil one or the evil in them or the evil around them, and so they just lock up and they close up and they remove themselves from the world that Jesus prayed that they would go into. So um, Jesus prays, don't take them out of the world. Now, Stop and look around. L look in your own heart. What's in there? What, what is your tendency to do? Um, 
there, there, um, there's a couple things to think about this, in my opinion. For those who want to run away and hide, Jesus specifically prayed for your protection in the world he called you to. In verse 18, do you see what it says there? Jesus says, Father, you sent me into the world, and I'm sending them. Jesus came on mission. He lived around the world, worked in the world, and he's sending us into the world. So here's a question for you, church. Are you in it? Are you obedient? I totally understand. I'm totally sympathetic. If, if you hate you enough and you hate the evil's attack enough and if you hate the society enough and you hate all that stuff that is anti-God and you go, I'd just rather, I'd rather just build my little fort and wait for it all to end. I understand it, but it's wrong. Do you get it? So the question is, are you in it? Are you in the world? For those of you who are, if you answer the question, yeah, I'm, I'm in it, then my question to you is, are you protected in it? Are you walking wise in it? Because here's where I think the church is predominantly at. The church isn't just in it. Do you, under, you know where I'm going with this? It's of it. Church has got the world all over it. That's part of the confusion. We live in a world who's watching us say Jesus, and they go, well, you kind of talk like I do, especially when you get really angry, because that's like me too. And you spend your money like I do, and you, and you go to the same places on the internet, and you're divorced like I am, and you, you have broken relationships around you like I do. And so tell, tell me again, why do I need Jesus? What would be the point? Like, you mean more burden, and I got to do all these things, and I can have your life? You see the problem? There's a big difference between in it that Jesus prayed for and of it that he says, don't protect them from it. That's the evil that Jesus is saying, God, protect them in this. Because they're going to get in it and it's going to want to shape you. But the Bible says through Christ we're to shape it. You get it? It's, it's not easy, but it's, it's what he calls us to. So we have a tendency to look like them. Here's what Jesus prayed. The Christians would be actually engaged in the world of lost people because they have no hope apart from Jesus. Part, part of our essential elements discussion of building a stronger church in a few weeks, we're going to talk about intentional evangelism and we're going to pray for serious conviction and obedience. Because it, it, just pretend, and I know I am, let's just pretend that the hundreds of you in this room and the hundreds of you over in the conference center, every one of you would say, I love Jesus. Then I know what you're supposed to do. And if we're not doing it, then somehow there's a problem here. Jesus left us here to engage the lost world who doesn't have a hope apart from him. There, there's another thing that's true that Jesus prayed for. And, and I, this is a part nobody likes to hear. But the condition in which he leaves you to live this out is a fighting one. Uh, the, the scripture does a good job of... Um, using words, word pictures to describe the, the, the faith walk. Sometimes it uses athletic terminology, you know, like it's a running a race. You've heard that before. Or it's like boxing. I buffet my body. I make it my slave. And then it talks about fights. And all I know about fights that I've been in, they always feel like one. I've never been in one and go, well, that was nice. 
I like that. I can't wait to do that again. I'll put you on my calendar. Fights feel like fights. And, church, that's every day for us. We fight flesh every day. We fight sin every day. We fight the culture pushing against us every day. In fact, the Bible says you're here to do warfare for the king. So we're on kingdom business and we're supposed to shape the world around us, right? So we're praying like Jesus prayed in his his Lord's prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So everywhere we go, we're supposed to build little kingdoms of God here on this earth that look like him, talk like him, walk like him, act like him. And that's going to feel like a fight every day. And Jesus prays for us, church. He prays for your protection in it. But, but I would, it would be wrong for me to say, and it's going to be awesome. You're going to love every minute of it. No, put on the boxing gloves and get ready for a life of fighting because that's what he's called us to, to live out, be so different. What's the scripture say? Salt and light. Flavor your world. Illuminate your world. Bring the light of Christ, bring the flavor of glory to your world. They're not going to get it all the time, and some are going to be really, really angry that you bring it. Bring it, because there's no hope to mankind without it. So Jesus prays for our safety and our protection and our security there. There's a fourth thing that Jesus prays for in verse 17 through 19. He prays for our sanctification. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for your sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. This, to, to be sanctified means to be make holy. And he tells us how in his word, in the truth. You see it at the end of verse uh, 17? Let, let me put it another way. If being sanctified is being set apart or to be made holy, and he tells us how that happens through truth, then my question to you, church, is are you feeding the soul? It's more than church on Sundays, okay? This hour and a half, although very good and I believe God ordained, it isn't all that. You know what it is to feed the soul? Well, let me contrast and compare. You know what it's like to feed the flesh. You know how much work you put into that? Do you know how much? I'm not talking about eating, although I could. I'm talking about all the other things that are counter God. How much time do you spend harboring resentment towards a person who's hurt you? How much time do you spend on the internet looking at stuff you should never look at? How much time do you spend doing anti-God types of things? It's ridiculous if you were to count the hours, right? It's just absolutely ridiculous. That's feeding the flesh. You're putting a ton of work into it. All I'm saying is Jesus prays for your set-apartness, your holiness. You have to contribute. You have to get in and feed the soul. I, I don't have, let's, let's put it this way. Maybe my greatest benefit to you is an example of what not to do in your life. So you can just put me up and go, well, just do opposite of him and you'll be better. That could be true. Um, I've had a couple of moments where I felt like feeding the soul I could understand. And it happens every now and then. But I'll, I'll tell you, this happened years ago. I, was, I made a commitment not to do Bible studies anymore. Now, before you judge me, hear me out. Because I'm a driven guy, and I'm, 
I'm either on 150% or I'm, I'm passed out. I'm, I'm going in an extreme direction all the time. Do you understand? Do you believe me? So I'm in it all the way or I'm totally prone and unconscious. And when it comes to pursuing devotional life with God, feeding the soul, um, I have similar experiences. So sometimes I can just go dormant. And sometimes it can be so intense I can't even keep up. A few years ago, I made a commitment not to do Bible studies because I was so tired of just going through the motions. And I was going through the motions. Maybe some of you are. I was learning stuff, which isn't bad. And I I had a date by everything I accomplished, and there was a box somewhere checked, I'm assuming. But I didn't feel nourished. You ever been there? Ever feel like it's a little bit dry? So I said, okay, God, something's got to change. This can't be what you want. I mean, just discipline, just discipline without devotion can't be what you want. So I, I threw, I didn't throw it away. I just got rid of all the study guides and got rid of all the commentaries, and I took my Bible and a notebook and a pen. I said, okay, God, here's what you promised. Your Holy Spirit is a teacher. That's one of his main functions. He longs to instruct his people and affirm and encourage his people. Uh, so I obviously have a hearing problem. I don't hear you very well because I'm filling everything else in. I don't need a, I don't need a Holy Spirit. I've got these other guys. So I sat down in my favorite place at McDonald's, and I just sat. Really uncomfortable because I didn't have anything to do. Now, I did read, so I wasn't stupid. So I, I opened my Bible and notebook, and I read, and I said, Okay, Holy Spirit, teach me. And then I made one condition. I said, I'm going to pretend like I don't know anything again. So all these words that I just assume. Like when you're reading the Bible and you're reading it fast and you're 20 years old in Christ and you're going, you fly over grace and you fly over mercy and propitiation. You fly over redemption. You fly over the salvation of God for Christ. And you're just jumping over that. And you go, I don't get anything new. Well, this whole story, this redemptive story of God isn't complex But it is very diverse, and so it's kind of like, I describe it this way, it's like a diamond with unlimited amount of facets. Like any beautiful thing like that, you take it and spin it and look at another facet, you go, oh, I didn't know that. So I forced myself to sit and be quiet and look at the diamond and let the Holy Spirit talk, and I would just start writing. And when I got to words that I thought I knew, I would write outlines on words I thought I knew already. And I'm just telling you, I'm telling you right now, I was more set apart in my life then than any other point in my life. And to my detriment and my shame, you say, well, why didn't you continue that, Tim? Because I'm a puke. (laughs) I've had moments like that. I've got a lot of started journals. I say my failure to your encouragement. Jesus prays for your holiness. He prays for your set-apartness. And it's not a pill you can take, church. You have to want him. And the scriptures say if you seek him and you seek him with all your heart, you'll find him. He's not playing hide and seek. He'll come. He'll come running. Just shut up long enough to hear him. And I, I, I challenge you. I mean, maybe we'll get to that someday where we all do this together, where we maybe just have the Holy Spirit in the Bible and see what happens. Maybe. Anyway, God is into our holiness and to be really practical for us, church, if, if, if you're sitting here listening to me right now and you've got some questions, let me just, let me press a little harder. Um, when it comes to being sanctified and holy, there are just some places Christians don't go. There are some things, some things that could be freedoms that aren't available to all people because you know you. 
You understand? You know you. You know if you're honest with yourself, you go, I can't have that. I can't do that. There are some people in your life who can't be your best friend. You can't be unequally yoked with, with, with just anybody. Do you understand? So you could ask your own series of questions. What does it look like to be so serious about the sanctification that Jesus prayed for me to have, and what am I willing to do to have it? Fair question? Fifth thing that Jesus prays for. He prays for our unity. Verses 21 through, uh, verses 20 through 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There are four particular aspects to this unity that Jesus is praying for for us. So if you're a note writer, just write these down, because you'll see the, the breadth of his, of his prayer request here. The first one is the scope of our unity. That phrase that they may all be one, that's the idea of, of the source of it, where it comes from, the inside. It's a common confession. It's a common affection. It's a common mission. It's a common concern. A concern. It's what we share together because of Christ in us, right? You know what this is like when you're bopping around your little world and you run into somebody who says, I love God's gospel too. You don't even know them. You know nothing about them, but suddenly you feel some kind of connection. Ever happened to you? That unity happens not because you have so many things in life in common, but in soul in common. You're one in Christ, you see? I mean, how, how connected do you feel to somebody when they say, I'm a sinner like you are, and we have the same great Savior? Man, that, that creates all sorts of commonality. There is also not only the scope of unity that Jesus prays for, but the source of unity. He says that phrase, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, what Jesus has in mind here is the unity that's shared um, with the Father in redemption. So let me just lay out the, the outline. You've heard it a thousand times before. It's, it's what we talk about all the time here, but this is what Jesus is praying for. It is the, it's the idea of what brings us together in the work that the Father has accomplished for us. Before the foundations of the world, God had a plan to redeem sinners. God the Son left heaven some 2,000 years ago to come to this world and take on flesh. God sent him. He lived and he died. The Son now mediates sinners to the Father, right? And the plan of eternity, eternity past is carried out. Perfect union. What? It's the most amazing in the world. God and sinner reconciled. It blows me away just to say that. The, the, the unbelievable, huge canyon of, of sin and distance between utter perfection and righteousness and my constant wandering has been solved because Christ hangs in the middle to put us together. Do you see that? And so when Jesus prays for our unity, he's saying not only this common confession, but look at this common salvation through the Father. There's one other word I want to give you, and that is the substance of our unity. That phrase, that they also may be in us, this is the ultimate divine mystery. And, and I've said this before, I hope you don't get tired of hearing it, but I always think this thought, what God could have done. Like the two aspects to our salvation is really hard for me to fathom why, but you know, I have a sin problem, I have a separation problem, I got, a, I got an issue, and yet what we just 
said is that God, through his son, bridged the gap of sin between righteousness and, and saves me. God could have. He didn't. He could have dealt with my sin and said, okay, but I don't want to be with you. Couldn't he? He could, have, he could have taken us back to a Genesis 2 moment and said, all right, just wander around in here, kind of like a cute pet. He said, just stay out of trouble. And he could have dealt with the separation thing and kept his distance. But God came close. No, the, the words the scripture uses are, he made us heirs of the king, sons and daughters, brothers of Christ. Do you see that? I mean, God not only fixed the sin, but brought us in and said, hey, you're, you're with it. You're in it. We're made children of God. There's one other aspect of this unity that we share, and that is the fruit of it, the fruit of unity, verses 21 through 23. In fact, it's just mainly 23, but I want to read it in context. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may know, believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world, and if you're paying attention, you should be underlining this phrase, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as I have loved you. Here's the fruit of it. And I'm going to do a little kind of, kind of a tutorial so that it'll, it'll make real good sense. If we go through the logical sequence of what, what Jesus has been praying, here's where we go. When we live in Christ, we live more like Christ. Tracking so far? Make sense? When we live in Christ, we live more like Christ. We become more sanctified and set apart and, and holy. And when we live more like Christ, we live more together in his power. And when, according to this passage, when we live more together in his power, the world looks at it and says, I see Jesus. Do you get it? Something about us living the way we are to be living out loud together speaks volumes about the Savior. It's it's compelling. It makes an impact. It's unworldly. It's unspeakable. It's all those things the scripture says about it. Let me flip it so you can see from the negative side of it. But nothing encourages unbelief in a world more than the church fractured. Does that bring conviction on you? How many people do you remember who used to fellowship with See, that should bring conviction to us. Because Jesus is praying, God, make them one. Because when you're one, they'll see that, that this is true and it's real. I pray that they stay together. I pray that they're together, common in their confession, common in redemption, common in their brother-sisterhood in me, and common in their fruit. One last thing he prays for, verse 24 that we'd be with him. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Now, there's a little switch going on here. Jesus has spent the majority of this passage talking about what we currently participate with him in, 
right? What this means to live out our faith currently right now with the Spirit of God living in us through the salvation of Christ. So we see all these things being set apart and unified and all that stuff. Jesus now turns his attention from current participation to future glory. He changes it to what's going to happen. And I want you to, if you're a, a word circler or you write this down, you need to highlight the phrase, I desire. These are Christ, the Savior, Creator's words for your proximity to him in the future. And let me just give you the definition of I desire. It means to will, to purpose, implying action to bring it about. It's emotional, it's urgent, and it's passionate. So here's here's God passionate about your being with him in glory. Now, I'm picturing this scenario where the disciples are hanging around the edges and Jesus is praying this prayer, looking at each other going, did you hear that? Like, he is really into this, and us. So, fast forward now, 2,000 years, and we're hearing it. How do you feel about it? What does it do to you to hear that Jesus really, really passionately is committed to you being with him? Should do something. A couple of things to notice here. Just see in verse 24 who it applies to. All whom you've given me. We saw this last time we looked at John 17, but it's every single person who will put his faith and trust in Christ. Everyone who will, will be saved forever with the Son. Forever. Again, not the possibility of it, but the certainty of it. None of his will perish. No one will snatch us from his hand. No one will be lost. Not a single one. And if you notice also in that verse, the why, he tells us why it matters to see my glory. Do you see the end of that verse? So he does all this to demonstrate how awesome he is. And he invites us in to see how it finishes. So let me give you kind of a a human perspective or what it's like in this idea. Um, For Jesus to invite us there to see his glory is like us sharing with our friends some great moment in their life. It's like participating in their enjoyment, right? So uh, this was several years ago. Uh, A good friend goes here, Ron Pritchard. I don't know if he's here today, but uh, he was being inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame, a very prestigious, very few people get into the Hall of Fame. And he said, hey, Tim, I want you and your wife to come to the ceremony. So I was invited to a dinner with Frank Cush and a whole bunch of former ASU players and then to the field the the day they inducted him. That's exactly the idea. I was invited into his enjoyment of an amazing thing. Jesus invites his bride, his church, to come and see how he finishes this. I want you to see all this redemption come to culmination. I want you to know what I gave my life to finish for you. And we get to be there, church. And Jesus prays these things to the Father. So six really practical things that I think we need prayer for. And when I, when I got all done with this lesson, I said, well, Lord, I don't even know. There's, this is too much material and it's too hard. And I thought, well, let me try to paraphrase it in such a way that you just feel the wave of it. And, and I wrote the world's longest run-on sentence. Um, <laughs> but you'll have to endure it because I'm reading it. Um, And when I'm all done, I'm going to ask you a question, okay? So I just need you to listen to this. 
Father, keep them in the truth so that they will know joy of the soul fully protected from evil. As they run into the world with the message of hope, as you're transforming them into a holy people, united in their confession, in their union, in their mission, and future with you as their father. That, in essence, is what Jesus prayed for us. It's a mouthful. And I won't quiz you later, see if you can repeat it, but I do have a question for you. Could someone use your life as proof that Jesus' prayers are answered? I thought it was a pretty good question. If Jesus, the King of glory, the creator, the sustainer, the savior of man, is praying these things, could anybody look at your life and go, gosh, I was reading John 17 the other day and I was watching your life. I'm going, Jesus, he did that in you. Like you seem to have this unity with the brothers. You seem to have this sanctification and set apartness. You seem to have confidence and joy. You seem to have this anticipation for the future. When I read John 17, I think of you because Jesus prayed this and it's all over you. What do you think? Or would people look at you and go, I don't get it. I'm confused. I guess Jesus doesn't even answer his own prayers. I also know that some of you would and could and should say, you know, I think, I mean, I'm not perfect, but God has done a lot of amazing things. And so there's a, there's a plus here. Yes, there's a win. So amen, God gets the glory. That's all good. But I think there's a possibility that some of you sat here really quiet because you know that the conviction of the Spirit just crushing your bones right now. And there's a couple of possible outcomes to answering that question in a negative fashion. One is you look at your life and you don't see transformation because you're not transformed. What I mean by that is you know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. In your mind, you understand uh, sin and you understand uh, Jesus being God's solution to sin. You understand those things. You can articulate it, but you haven't embraced it. You, you haven't left behind to chase after. And so you don't feel transformed and nobody could say this is true of you and the prayers aren't answered because your life isn't. And so I would say to you three simple words. If God is convicting you this morning, if somehow that simple question makes you go, I can't just tolerate knowing about him. I got to answer this question of who he is. Then I'm going to give you three words. You ready? Confess, repent, believe. Confession is simply just agreeing with what God already knows about you. You just don't argue anymore. I'm a sinner, I'm lost and hopeless, and you should judge me forever. Period. Period. That's confession. Repentance is you leave your sin behind, you leave your will, your way, your kingdom behind, and you pursue his. And belief is simply putting your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. Not in yourself, not in religion, not of, not of becoming better. You, this is not a moral robe you put on at all. You don't have to fix yourself. You have to embrace by faith Christ and what he's already done. And the Bible says if you do that, you'll be saved. Now, I've always said the moment I read that, that's absurd. But it's true. It is so true that you don't have to be good enough because you can't be good enough. And you can't sort it out or fix it up. You can't do anything with it. All you can do is say, okay, God, if you said that's who I am and I don't argue with that, then I embrace your solution. I want Jesus. And if you do that, you will be transformed. You'll be transformed. 
There's another possible answer to this uh, question in that you say, I do believe in Christ. I have put my faith and trust in Christ, but I don't feel transformed. No one would say that this prayer is answered in me. Well, then there's a possibility for you, Christian, that you're just rebellious, disobedient. There's sin in your life. We all have it. And, and maybe you built a house there. Maybe you hung shingles and curtains and put a mailbox out front and said, I'm going to live here in sin. And all I'm telling you, church, if you want to experience the answered prayer of Jesus for you and your transformation, repent of your sin and find him because he, he will be found by you. Amen? Let's pray for his help. Thank you, Jesus, for your prayers for us. Thank you that you are delivering on them. Thank you, God, that we have hope that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, nothing. God, I thank you so much that you are working in, in our lives and you won't stop until it's complete in glory. Father, we love you so much. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.